This is a recording from the More Than the Score lecture series at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. On September 3, 2011, economics professor Kenneth Elzinga gave his perspective on Our University, Things That Change and Things That Stay the Same. He's introduced by Cindy Frederick, Assistant Vice President for Engagement. It is now my pleasure to introduce to you Marshall Jevons or at least half of Mr. Jevons, because not only is Kenneth Alzinga known and famous in our academical village, he is also well known and famous in the world of books under the pen name Marshall Jevons. A co-author of three mystery novels, Mr. Alzinga has helped the masses learn about economic principles through the story of a good mystery. The Wall Street Journal gave praise for his first book, Murder at the Margin, which is right here, with this comment, if there is a more painless way to learn economic principles, scientists must have recently discovered how to implant them in ice cream. A professor of economics at UVA since 1967, Mr. Elzinger brings the world of economics to life and has the distinction of teaching the largest class at UVA. Each fall, over a thousand students can't wait to get more of this econ ice cream and I know we can't wait any longer. So please join me in welcoming Professor Kenneth Elzinger to kick off the sixth season of More Than the Score. <laughs> Professor Elzinger. Thank you, Cindy, and good morning, everyone. Uh, professors are always willing to profess, but I do not intend to profess about economics this morning. Instead, I want to talk about Mr. Jefferson's University, where I have had the privilege to be employed since the fall of 1967. And I want to talk about things that change and things that have stayed the same. And I'm not sure why, but it is a very common question when you meet a first-year student to have the student ask me, how long have you been at UVA, Mr. Elzinga? Now, I can restrain my enthusiasm for this question because when I respond, since the fall of 1967, the look on their face is always one of incredulity. <laughs> and they're doing the arithmetic in their heads, I can see that. And they're either thinking, this guy has been at UVA more than twice as long as I've been alive, or for this generation of students who anticipate having five or six or seven or eight employers in their lifetime, they're thinking, can't this guy get a better job after all these years? <laughs> I have been at the university long enough to witness changes. Some of them I've welcomed, some of them I have not. The most notable and evident change during my time is the co-ed character of the College of Arts and Sciences. When I arrived, all students in the College of Arts and Sciences were male. And when the college admitted women, the year was 1970, it did not do so in token fashion. In two years, the college was thoroughly integrated, male and female. And the move to co-education was, was accomplished with remarkable skill by the university's administration. And one result has been to improve the academic stature of the institution. Uh, the classroom rigor of the college escalated substantially. And like every professor I know in the college, I'm pleased that a son of the university now can be someone's daughter. Another very visible change is the skin color of the university community. When I arrived, students at Mr. Jefferson's university were almost all white. I don't know the statistics, but I suspect the undergraduate population is now almost 25% non-white. The number of African American and students of Asian background is, is simply evident to anybody who walks around the grounds. This semester, I suspect a third of my office hours are spent with students from either China or Korea. And diversity is not just in the form of skin color. Uh, recently, after teaching Econ 201, I was holding office hours. A first-year student came in. This is a student who fa whose father had died when he was two months old. His mother had serious addiction problems, and he ended up in foster care. And the boy wants a career on Capitol Hill. And early in my career at UVA, I, I simply did not encounter any white students who had this young man's background. 
Another visible change that I witnessed firsthand was the decline and fall of the coat and tie tradition. At one time, and this was the case when I arrived, all students in the college wore a coat and tie on grounds. And you probably cannot imagine the culture shock for me as a new professor coming to Charlottesville in August 1967 from Michigan State University. Professor, President Sullivan and I are both graduates of Michigan State University. And at MSU, I'm embarrassed to say, one could teach a course wearing jeans and a shirt without a collar, much less a tie. So when I first arrived and I was shelving books in my uh, office in the basement of Rouse Hall, a young man showed up at the door. And uh, I still remember the experience. He was wearing a sport coat, an Oxford cloth shirt, rep tie, cordovan shoes. And being new to town, I assumed I was being called upon by an insurance salesman. Uh, but it was a student. It was Jim Wooten was his name. And the demise of the coat and tie tradition, I think, has its regrettable side. I, I continue to believe in the theory that if you constrain the circulation of blood and air in the vicinity of a man's neck, he will behave in a more civilized manner. I have, I have never read of a mugger wearing a coat and tie. Very few bank robbers wear a coat and tie. But you know, even with the demise of the coat and tie tradition, there is still a different attire at Virginia than other ACC schools. Another change that I mentioned, alluded to earlier, has been the shift in academic intensity at Virginia. The College of Arts and Sciences is a better school now than it was in the late 1960s. Uh, when I arrived, 90% of the incoming class had not graduated in the top 10% of their high school class. Now, let me just say here, I'm not persuaded that the students are better prepared from their high schools when it comes to writing skills and a knowledge of history. But today's students work harder than their predecessors, and the university is more competitive than when I first arrived. And here's a major change. The students are far more career focused. Uh, some will have resumes ready to distribute in their first year. I didn't have a resume when I got my PhD, but many first year <laughs> students will have one. Uh, let me comment on another change among undergraduates. Uh, there's an increasing amount of research going on with undergraduates and by undergraduates. Uh, last year, bear in mind I've been on the faculty here for over 40 years, last year I published my first paper in a scholarly journal with an econ math double major, a student in the college, uh, Dan Malo was my co-author. And I could not have done the paper without Dan, he could not have done the paper without me. It was a genuine joint effort. And I'm working on another paper with an undergraduate. In both instances, we've gone to conferences together and presented our work. Most undergraduate research at UVA will not involve the professor as a co-author. Most will not result in publication. But many undergraduates now want a research experience of some sort in the process of getting their bachelor's degree. The problem with this new focus on undergraduate research is it's very labor intensive for the faculty. Uh, we're accustomed to working with graduate students and their research. And most departments, mine included, simply do not have the resource base to oversee a lot of eager undergraduates who want to do research as well. Now, may I say a word about inflation? Not the monetary kind, I mean grade inflation. There's been great inflation at UVA from the time that some of you were undergraduates here. Not as much as at most institutions, but um, more than at others. And just as it's really tricky for an economist to sort out the difference between real and nominal monetary inflation, the same goes for grade inflation. Students claim that they're smarter than their predecessors at UVA and therefore they deserve higher grades. I am only partially persuaded. Um, the Department of Economics is known for holding the line on grade inflation. And this comes at a cost. Uh, Econ 201 has had no grade inflation from when some of you were there 30, 35, and 40 years ago. And I pay a personal price for this. Often, oddly, at weddings. 
<laughs> Not long ago, a Rhodes Scholar recipient from the university, who was the bride that day, reminded me at her reception in the Colonnade Club that Econ 201 was the only course at UVA in which she received a B. I mean, this was on her mind on her wedding day. Uh, <laughs> I was in a, in a wedding of a young man two summers ago, and the mother of the bride, on a lovely day at the King Family Vineyard, asked me why my course had to be so hard for her daughter. Uh, there is a family in this town in which I have taught all three of the children. I know the parents very well. And the three kids continue to badger me about how Econ 201 was the hardest course they had at UVA. Over and over again, I hear, oh, Elzinga, he seems like a nice guy, but watch out for his final exam. <laughs> now, a lot of my students get A's and B's. I know the course can't be that difficult. But when I look at the average grades awarded by some of the other departments at UVA, especially in the humanities, I wonder, what would a student have to do to get a C or a D in those classes? Would you have to assault the professor, or what, what would it take? Now, staying on the subject of academics, let me mention the increasing academic stature of the university's faculty. To be promoted to a position of tenure at UVA today, an assistant professor has to have a remarkable research record. And some of us who have been tenured for a while um, are, are both humbled by and proud of, if I can put those two together, we're humbled by and we're proud of the standards now applied to our young scholars. Here's another change. There has been an increasing interest in religion among students, especially evangelical Christianity, but also Judaism and recently Islam. Within the Christian sphere, UVA struck me as a wasteland in the late 1960s. And today there are active chapters of many student Christian groups. There's a center of Christian study adjacent to the grounds. It, it, it's no longer peculiar to be spiritually observant at UVA. And on a personal note, the Christian community at the university is one of the most profoundly satisfying aspects of my own association here. Now, somewhat gingerly, may I address the subject of the honor system. Among the faculty, I'm known to be one of the most supportive members of the faculty towards the honor system. Uh, and therefore, it's with, with a measure of sadness that I report my personal opinion that the honor system is not what it used to be. I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not talking about demise. Most of us on the faculty still take a student's word, and we do so with confidence. And honor is still an important part of the university's DNA. And I'll illustrate this with a story. For 10 years, my wife Terry and I lived on the lawn in Pavilion 4. And we ran Pavilion 4 as an open space. Most every day of the week, there would be some student group meeting in the front room. And often, my wife and I were not there when the students would come and go. We, we were, I was at my office. Terry was somewhere. Students would have their meeting in the front room. They would leave. Sometimes, I would arrive at Pavilion 4 from my office. And I would check the refrigerator door to see who was meeting in the living room upstairs. And over the course of 10 years, with literally hundreds of students visiting Pavilion 4, we never had anything taken, not once. Try that at another educational institution, and you gain a new appreciation for the honor system. Communications technology has changed the culture of the university in ways that we're, they're still unfolding. We're still trying to understand it. Students who once would have come by a professor's office with questions now, often, as a substitute, send emails. I am disquieted by this change. In, in econ lingo, it raises costs asymmetrically for professors relative to students. For most professors, it takes more time to type an answer to a question than to simply say the answer in words to a student. And I long for voice recognition email technology which is kind of what we once had with something called a telephone. And I regularly face over a thousand unanswered emails. I simply cannot keep up with the email traffic and still see students personally and prepare lectures and do research. Cell phones are as common as textbooks. And, and many students now go between classes not talking and walking with a companion, 
but they're talking and walking with their cell phone. Unlike reports I hear about other schools, I never hear a cell phone go off in my class at UVA. I have a thousand students and, and I have yet to hear a cell phone go off and yet I know there's hundreds of them out there. Backpacks, which were very rare when I arrived, are commonplace with students today and they are packed. Books, laptops, water bottles, snacks, some students carry things that have a, a weight and a cubic volume that they, they look like Sherpas walking around the grounds. <laughs> And those of you who don't recall class crowding at the university, you probably graduated quite a few years ago. Uh, in some departments, mine is one of them, getting into certain classes is very difficult. And some students now have to really scramble to, to complete a portfolio of classes that will constitute a major in four years. Uh, what keeps this from being a really significant problem is that so many students now start their major early compared to when many of you arrived. Uh, it used to be very unusual for me to have first-year students in my introductory Econ 201 class, and now they are the, the modal category. And if I could just diverge from the remarks I prepared a moment. This morning I got an email from a first-year student named Sarah Olson, and I'm going to share a part of it with you. Um, and I, and I have to give you a little bit of a background for those of you who have been away for a while. To enroll in classes now, you use a software system called SIS. And students aren't enthused about it. And for old guys like myself, it's a real challenge to figure out how you use it as a professor. But students use this device to try and get in classes that are oversubscribed, among other things. And when a class is oversubscribed, SIS allows you to write a statement about why it's important for you to get in that class. And I have to turn away hundreds of students in Econ 201, so I read hundreds of little statements about why. And then I am asked with my mouse, it was very difficult for me to say granted or denied. And then that word goes out to the student, Elzinga denied you admission. And so I'm the bad guy. Uh, and some people I'm able to grant, but I have to pick and choose. I'm, and the university will not allow me to use a price system to do this. I can't use market <laughs> allocation. And those of you who took a class from me know that non-market allocation is inherently messy. And, uh, but that's what I have to do. So I look for things that are different from I'm first year and I'm thinking of majoring in economics, so I need Econ 201. Or I'm first year and I'm thinking of going to the McIntyre School, so I need Econ 201. I get hundreds of those. I look for something different. So here's Sarah Olson writes me one. And on the subject line it says, communists equal economists. Now that got my attention. <laughs> and, and so she writes, one day in kindergarten, my class was asked to tell about their parents' jobs. And I proudly announced that both of my parents were communists. I learned later that they were economists. And, uh, and she, she writes, I would love to learn from you what my parents have been doing all these years as communists. So, you know, how could you, I mean, granted, she's in. You know. Now, I'll tell you, here's something else that's interesting about Sarah. She was admitted to William and Mary in a very prestigious program they have with St. Uh, Andrews University. Five kids get into this. It is very, very difficult to get in this program. She was admitted. She turned down William and Mary, even though she was admitted, and she says, my dad, my two older sisters, and my brother all attended William and Mary. My family assumed I would go to William and Mary, but I decided on May 1, the deadline deposit was due, that the opportunity cost of going to UVA was less than the opportunity cost of this joint degree program. My family purchased tickets to the football game this weekend and will be wearing their green and gold Let's Go Who's. <laughs> now, you know, this, this is why I've got the greatest job in the world. I mean, I, 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 I meet people like this. There are people who go to this university who are like Sarah Olson. Uh, for those of you who uh, were econ students and have not been back on grounds, you might be surprised to learn that the Department of Econ is no longer in Rouse Hall. That's now the home of the Com School. The department is in Monroe Hall, where I am a happy camper with a lovely office made beautiful by a Palladian window overlooking the West Range. And I have a reception area for my students who, when they wait to see me, don't have to sit out in the hallway, but they've got a room where they can read and visit and have cookies and soft drinks while they wait for whatever illumination they might receive from me. I love where I work. Now, let me take you back in time to 1976, 
America's bicentennial year. And in that year, the American Institute of Architects selected the lawn as the most important architectural contribution during the first 200 years of the United States, the most important. And students at UVA at the time entertained no doubts that the award was deserved. Recognize now, this was before students were green or environmentally concerned. But students then treated the lawn in a way that never marred its beauty. No one would cut across it to wear a footpath or ride bicycles down the terraces. And many students today, for reasons that puzzle me, treat the lawn the way students at a school like American University might treat their nondescript and non-historic quad, without appreciation or a sense of preservation. And this, to me, is a very unwelcome change at our university. Here's another unwelcome change. Students today with sufficient frequency now call me Dr. Elzinga or Professor Elzinga that I'm no longer surprised or taken aback at the absence of the terminology that Mr. Jefferson preferred for faculty, which would simply be Mr. Elzinga. And when every student addresses me as Dr. Elzinga or Professor Elzinga, I shall consider that a time of sadness because the university will have taken a step to being plain vanilla. There have been enormous changes in the athletics program during my time at UVA. I'll start with the football team. When I arrived in 1967, the university seemed to take a perverse pride in losing. And uh, that is no more the case. Sports Illustrated now considers UVA one of the top jock schools in the nation. Uh, rather than talk about the premier sports, the major sports of football and basketball, I'll just comment on the prominence of lacrosse, field hockey, rowing, uh, tennis, soccer. Uh, Coach Bernardino, a former student of mine, an econ major who coaches swimming here, his swimming program is outstanding. Uh, Ed Moses, who was an econ major, won two Olympic medals out of that program. I'll mention a coach that you may not know as well, but that's Coach Steve Garland of the wrestling team. Uh, I've gotten to know him. He's a young guy uh, whose team won the ACC championship two seasons ago. I could tell you a story about Coach Garland's care of an injured wrestler, a student of mine, that would move many of you to tears. Remarkable guy on our coaching staff. Now let me turn to a congenial constant during my whole time at the university, and that's the courtesy typical of the Virginia student. And this is something often noticed and remarked upon by professors who visit the university from other schools. I believe it would be impossible, or at least very unlikely, at any other public university to be able to teach the number of students I have in Econ 201, over a thousand students this year, year after year, without unpleasant or discordant incidents. Never had one. Uh, but at UVA, students are courteous to the faculty, and they have been for years. What about the community in which UVA resides? How has it changed? If you've not been in Charlottesville for a while, 29 North has changed the most. This uh, stretch of road through Charlottesville is the most accident-prone in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It is gridlock at certain times of the day. The retail frontier of Charlottesville keeps moving closer and closer to Rockersville. Nonetheless, Charlottesville somehow remains a little Virginia city with a, a cosmopolitan, and if I can use the word gently, uh, a, a slightly snobbish air to it. The corner has changed. It's tonier with its brick walks. Some of you remember University Cafeteria, University Diner, University Theater. They're all gone. But you can still get a Gus Burger at the white spot. And Mincers still anchors the corner. Its days as a pipe shop are gone. It's primarily a t-shirt shop today, but uh, we're grateful for it staying there. When you were at UVA, if you've come here from out of town, did you ever wonder what the people of Charlottesville, who are not affiliated with the university, do for a living? <laughs> that's a question that's very often asked. There's no major industry in Charlottesville to speak of. And the answer given by some of my colleagues in the Department of Economics is that the citizens of Charlottesville and Albemarle County support themselves by selling real estate to each other. That's all, that's all we can figure out. Now, I was asked to leave time for questions, so I'm, I'm close to ending my, prepare, my prepared remarks. 
And when I was in college and took up my first speech course, my speech teacher, Mrs. Balch, told me, I was called Kenny then, she said, Kenny, it's always important when you get near the end of your talk to let your audience know that you're getting near the end. And I said, Mrs. Balch, why is that important? She says, it will revive hope among your audience. <laughs> so I'm following Mrs. Balch's advice here. I'm getting near the end. I'm going to offer an impression of the university that has remained a constant during all my years on the faculty. And that is that UVA attracts students who want to be here. It's a terrible thing when an institution is populated by students for whom that school was their second choice or their third choice. And many schools are in that situation. The College of Arts and Sciences is fortunate to be attractive to so many high school students. And I'm fortunate to be on the faculty of such a university for that reason uh, and for many others. The continued success of the university depends not only on students who want to be here, but alumni who remain glad that they attended the university and are supportive of it. And I have no doubt that in this declining era of support from the Commonwealth that the, that the value of alumni support, and I don't just mean financial support, but support in other ways as well, is even more important to the university's well-being. Everybody's heard the expression, talk is cheap. Economics is the only scholarly discipline at UVA that can explain why talk is cheap. And it's because the supply so far exceeds the demand. And I'm going to reduce the supply of talk right now. And uh, thank you for coming and for your support of the university. And I'm told uh, that there may be some time for Q&A, and I'm happy to entertain questions. Yes. Okay, the question is, what changes would I hope for with President Sullivan being here? Uh, let me respond to that at two different levels. I've had the privilege of being with Terry Sullivan on a couple different occasions uh, where I've heard her speak and where I've had a chance to get to know her a little bit. And, and, and I've had a chance to observe her first year here, which I thought went great. And, and I'm very fond of her, and, and, and I think she's going to be a great president for this university. What do I hope for is that she'll be able to navigate the very tricky waters of uh, being the president of a major research university at a time of uh, declining public support for the place. So she'll be able to do that, be able to navigate um, the various constituencies, which for the University of Virginia includes the public sector in Richmond and legislatures there, as well as alumni and students and that she'll continue to understand that there's a, there's, there's a special culture of the university that involves things like honor and other aspects of the university, the traditions that, that are involved here, and that she'll be able to know how to sustain those in a way that, that caused the university to flourish in a changing world. And I, and I know it sounds kind of like a cliche, but I, I think she's the kind of person who will be able to pull that off. It will take great genius to do that because traditions are, by definition, things of the past and the university is very much a forward-moving research institution. But I, I was struck the other day, I, I heard her speak about, uh, here in this room, about the honor system. And, and I was very taken for somebody who did not take a degree here, how well she understood the honor system and how she understood the importance of it. The interesting thing about the honor system is that a lot of students don't realize how important it is while they're here. And then they leave and they go out in the rough and tumble of the real world and they realize this is a wonderful thing to be able to take people's word and to generally trust them because the rest of the world is not like that. And, and, and so what I find is this kind of paradox is that there may be a cynicism about the honor system while students are here in some cases, but many of them when they leave become great supporters of the honor system because they realize this makes the university, one thing that makes the university special. Thank you for your question. Other questions? Yes. Uh, well, the question was, are there changes that I would hope to see that have yet to occur? Uh, this will sound self-serving, but I don't intend it to be. I speak on behalf of hundreds of people who, uh, on the faculty who have not had a raise for three years. Uh, so uh, one thing I'd like to see is, a, is an adjustment in faculty salaries. But I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but not totally tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I, I hope to see 
and I won't know how to pull it off, it's not my job, but I hope to see that this student interest in undergraduate research will be something that will be um, somehow become part of the university community so that students who, who can do research have opportunities to do so. Professors who take the time to work with students, somehow that will be seen as part of their, of their job and, and appreciated in some way. And that uh, students who, um, who, who, for whom this is not really the best thing, will somehow get that type of guidance and say, you know, the best thing for me is to go ahead and take my courses and do my work and take my tests and so on, and that's the best thing for me in terms of my educational process. And I think that'll be tricky. We're still working out what it means to have undergraduates doing, doing research. As I say, 10 years ago, that was an undergraduate might write a paper, um, but to do a, a kind of an independent research project was very rare. The troubling thing now is, is it's sort of in the air that you should be doing research. And so some undergraduates think of this not so much that they have a burning desire to answer a research question, but they think this is an important line item on their resume. And it's hard on the faculty to sort out the people for whom they're just looking for a line item on their resume versus the people who, uh, who, who really have a passion for doing research. Yes? This is not a contra-statement, but as an undergraduate, I was privileged to get a perspective in terms of a scope of learning, a depth of learning, an opportunity to work that out in here in school that has served me the rest of my life in terms of understanding the, the system as a whole rather than the sum of the parts. This was not and will should never be, in my opinion, a cookbook school where you learn how to answer the test, and answering the test gets you an A. And that is precious, and to me represents the university. I know that you fundamentally believe this, but I need to tell you as a student, I really got it. Well, that's great. That's great to hear. That's why you're passionate about the university. Uh, and that's why many students who go to other schools for whom the degree was simply checking off a list of courses and taking a group of tests. They don't have a passion for their education. There was a question right here. Yes, ma'am. Yes, you mentioned uh, the increase in uh, undergraduate students doing research with the faculty. And one of the downsides, you said, was that it, it takes so much time in front of the faculty. It also takes time from the students. And it narrows the focus, their focus. Do you think that in fact undergraduates should not be required to put in so much time on a narrow field, but should be open, and this question be open more to the breadth of education? Yeah. The, the, the question was should, should undergraduates be aware that with the increasing cultural emphasis on doing research, that like all things in life, this comes at a cost, and the opportunity cost may be not getting a real liberal arts education because they're already focusing on a specific research project. I think that is a real danger. You know, I, I tell my students in Econ 201 that um, I want to teach this course in the, in the liberal arts grain, that this is not a course in business administration. I'm not teaching this course to encourage everybody to be an econ major. I want them to get a liberal arts education while they're here. And to the extent someone goes off on a, on a particular tangent to study a particular narrow topic in economics, that can be a divergence from taking courses in other departments. Uh, if a student is one of my advisees in economics, I just about require them to take the bare bones minimum number of courses in econ for a major. And some of them are surprised to hear that. They would think, well, shouldn't I take every econ course I can take if I'm going to be an econ major? My response is no, because that means you're not going to take Gary Gallagher's course in Civil War history. You're not going to take Dobbin's class in art history. These are other courses. This is the rich opportunity you have to take courses in other fields. It may be your only opportunity to do that. So you want to grab that while you can and, and get a really diverse portfolio of courses. I'm a great believer in that. That's one of the reasons I'm happy that econ at UVA is in arts and sciences, and it's not in a business school. Uh, yes, take the question. Yes, ma'am. 
What effect on the quality of education do you believe the ever-increasing enrollment pressures have had? Thanks. Question is, what, what has been the effect on the quality of education from increasing enrollment? Um, I don't have a lot of confidence in what I'll say. It's more an impression. Um, I'm sorry to see the university keep growing, but I understand the political pressures for us to grow. Um, I think you reach a point where, because the university has such a unique architectural infrastructure, where you begin to saturate that in a way where um, the, 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 the architectural character of the school begins to change because it's so jammed with people. Um, maybe we're not at that point yet, but I think we might be near an inflection point, so I'm, I'm, I'm always sorry to hear that we're continuing to grow. Um, on the other hand, the type of students that we attract, my goodness, they, they, they seem to, you know, they're just super kids for the most part. They're just thrilled to be here, and so I can understand the, the difficulty of denying access to a UVA degree to so many students like the Sarah Olsons who, who, who want to come here, and they're so thrilled to be here. The, the first-year students at this university, I see a disproportionate number of them because of Econ 201 and, and other avenues and things I'm involved in. in, the, in, in. It's just striking the excitement that first-year students have to be here. Uh, there's a question I usually ask first-year students as I'm getting to meet them, and I'll ask them about their classes and getting enrolled and so on, and I'll always say, how's it going in the dorms? Almost uniformly, they say, it's great. And I love the kids on my hall or everybody in my suite. And, and I'm thinking, the dorms on McCormick Road, how can anybody think it's great to live there? I mean, most of these are upper middle class kids. They've had their own room. It's been air conditioned. And, and now they move into this concrete block cell. And, and they're excited about it. And, and, and so to deny access to these kids, I can understand the tensions and the pulls to add more students. But on the other hand, you know, I came from a, I did my graduate work at Michigan State University, 40,000 students, and I saw how isolated the life was for so many undergraduates in a, in a mega university. You identified with some particular group, often a fraternity or a sorority or a club, and that was it. And that was your identity, was that niche. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not a lot. The striking thing about UVA is that students will come here and it's, and it's part of the DNA. I didn't talk about it in my talk, I should have probably, is this notion of student self-governance. And it applies not just to the honor system, but to any number of organizations that exist here, not because some dean said, we need this student group, but because from the bottom up, a group of students said, we need a group on women in finance. And, and so we have one now. And nobody in the administration that I know of said we need this group, but students form it. And the striking thing to me is as I meet students who are active in one group, how often they know students in other groups. You know, I went to an undergraduate college of 1,200 students. Everybody knew everybody's name. That's not UVA at the college, but it is striking to me how many undergraduates I know know a wide range of undergraduate students here in other endeavors, other ethnic groups, and so on, other majors. And I wonder, how large can the college get before we lose that? I don't know the number. I keep thinking we're, we, we might be close to it. Yes? Uh, my wife and I both had you in, in the uh, mid and late 70s. The question is, uh, is the, has the importance of the Michigan-Michigan State game uh, diminished? Or oh, yeah, <laughs> radically, radically. I, I don't even do the Michigan State thing anymore. When, when I first came here, I used to have this thing, because I come from Michigan State, and this place was so different. I couldn't get over the difference between UVA and Michigan State. So I used to tell my students, that Michigan State was our sister institution to the north. And, and I did it as teasing students because nobody at UVA wanted to be identified with a Big Ten school. And so I would call them, and people would say to me, I'd say, well, is that really? I said, Mr. Jefferson wanted UVA to have a, a sister institution to the north. And I have had emails from students years later asking me, they were in a debate with their wife or something, was Michigan State really our sister institution to the north? And I write back, yes, <laughs> no doubt about it. 
I'm not under the honor system. The students are, but I'm not. <laughs> That's too good a story to not continue. Yes. And the question, if you couldn't hear it, is been teaching Econ 201 for uh, a lot of years, and, and, and how much change has come in in my own thinking about what I teach, not just how I teach the course, but, but what I teach. The, it is certainly the case that if you took a look at the lectures now from what you saw in the 70s, some things are the, are the same. Examples may have differed, but the formula for elasticity has not changed uh, from 1967 to, uh, to today. And, and uh, the equilibrium conditions of the theory of perfect competition remain the same. But the teaching is different. I do more on uh, um, market failure now. I do more on environment. I don't think I even talked about environmental economics in 201 in the early days. Uh, I do more when I, I, I teach more about financial markets, and when I do that, I talk both of the rational actor model and efficient markets hypothesis, and I introduce them to it's it, you know it's an introductory course, but I introduce them to the notion of behavioral finance, and uh, I talk a little bit about more. I talk much more about the interplay between psychology and economics and the way economists have tended to either modify or rethink the rational actor model. So there's certainly, certainly changes, and um, I, I continue to work very hard at modifying my lectures. What's, what's frustrating is I, I, I may read a book and find one example. I think this would fit in 201, and then I'll go and rewrite the lecture and then think, well, the other example probably might have been better. But I, it helps keep me fresh to continually revise, 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 and, and try, to, try to tweak it and improve it. But I would say the main subject areas that have changed would be behavioral economics, the relationship between psychology and economics, and the uh, uh, concern with environmental issues and what economics might have to contribute to those. Yes, sir. Wow. I'm better now, believe me. I've improved. Uh, my, I have gotten better. Because I failed that first. Yeah. quizzes or tests throughout the course, or you could just show up and take the final. There was no, you didn't keep our record of when we came to class or not, so I, being second year at that time, figured I knew everything. I said, I'll just take the final. Well, great. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, some, <laughs> you know, the it's. I'm told that I've not only taught more students than anybody else at the university. It took me a while to catch up. Some of you know this name to catch up with Ray Bice, uh, because he taught here for many years, and he was one of my idols. He really was. He was a tremendous role model. I was fortunate when I came here. I had three or four professors who were gracious to me to talk about teaching, because I not only I knew the research requirements were high, but I wanted to be a good teacher. And Ray Bice was one of the people who, in a different department, those of you who don't know the name, he was in the psych department, literally let me come in his office and talk to him about teaching large classes. My colleague in the economics department, Bill Bright, was always eager to talk to me about teaching and how to improve teaching. And, uh, and then there was Norman Gravener in diplomatic history and Henry Abraham in the government department. And, and, and you know, to come back to your question on the liberal arts, note how of these four, only one was in my department. But UVA was the kind of place where I could learn from a Gravener, a Bice, uh, and, and others about trying to improve my teaching. I'm very grateful to, uh, to those people. Irby Cawthon was another one who uh, some of you may remember was uh, very gracious to me because I, I really, uh, I, I went to graduate school on a fellowship and never really did any teaching. So coming here was a real shock to me. All of a sudden I was on the other side of the, of the desk, so to speak, but it wasn't just a desk. I was in, with you in Cabell, Cabell, old Cabell Auditorium, uh, not the greatest teaching environment, uh, uh, teaching hundreds of, teaching a class that was about the size of my liberal arts college. Yes? Can you comment on Time. losing Coase, Coase, 
Sure, yeah. Um, uh, the question was, in the Department of Economics, uh, we lost three colleagues, uh, two of whom went on to win a Nobel Prizes, and uh, the third was, many people thought it was an injustice that he did not win the Nobel Prize. These economists were Ronald Coase, uh, author of the Coase Theorem. Ronald uh, was, had left just before I arrived, but I got to know him very well when I was a visiting professor at Chicago and went there largely because of Coase. Buchanan and Tulloch were colleagues of mine when I arrived, and they left. And all three of them would argue that they left because their views on economics were not appreciated by the administration, and they were appreciated more at other schools. This was a tremendous hit to uh, the econ department in terms of the prestige, and it was a very sad day for me. Uh, I did not work in the fields of economics where these uh, professors worked, but I knew them to be uh, great scholars. And uh, one of the features of the university, as distinguished as it is, we have never had a Nobel Prize winner. There are graduates of UVA that have won Nobel Prizes. There have been people who have been on the faculty here who have gone to other places and won Nobel Prizes. But in my department, uh, I had uh, two colleagues who were Nobel Prize winners, but not here. And it would have, added, as I said, I've had a great career here. I've loved being at UVA. I would love it even more if Buchanan and Coase had been my colleagues when they won the Nobel Prize. And the university just, uh, in my view, uh, was extraordinarily short-sighted, if not prejudiced, in letting these people go. Uh, Ronald told me that when he had the offer from the University of Chicago, um, that he really wanted to stay in, uh, in Charlottesville. This was his desire. He loved UVA. But uh, Chicago, which is a more prestigious university uh, in economics, to be sure, had made him this offer, and he went to the university, and they offered him $500 more to stay, which in effect was a slap in the face. It's in effect to say, we really don't want you here. And so he went to Chicago and several years later won a Nobel Prize. And to me, that's a to, uh, you know, a, a real source of embarrassment to the university that that happened. Same with Buchanan. Yes? Sir, I was thinking, I want to ask, uh, what do you think about the relationship between liberal arts education and pre-professional education? Because since in this uh, increasingly competitive world, uh, world, world uh, I think that one person should have a, you know, an edge or a specific focus in one field to stand out from others. But you know, uh, in the, uh, the liberal, art, uh, liberal uh, arts education, it kind of, you know, not give you that edge very, uh, uh, at your early age, or when you go to the works and other things. Sure. The question is, uh, is, is a complex one uh, and I'll to, to address briefly, but the question is, what, what is my view in a purportedly an increasingly competitive world for the interplay between getting a liberal arts education versus getting a professional education? Part of the genius of UVA is we offer both. You can come into the college for two years of liberal arts education and go to one of the premier business schools in the country, the McIntyre School of Business, and get a professional education and be prepared for the world of business. What I tell my students over and over again is that that's super preparation for business, but if you want a career in the business, in the business world, you can also stay in the College of Arts and Sciences and be superbly prepared for a, a job in business with one exception, and that's if you want to be an accountant. If you want to go into accounting, there's no way to learn that in the College of Arts and Sciences. But every other business field, whether it's HR, finance, management, uh, superb managers come out of liberal arts schools and manage corporations. In fact, it's not altogether clear that to be successful in the world of business, you need any degree. I mean, Bill Gates was a college dropout. Steve Ballmer dropped out. Uh, the guy that started Twitter is a dropped out of two colleges. Uh, it, it isn't altogether clear to me how much about business you can learn in a business school. Uh, I do a lot of consulting with major corporations in the world of antitrust. And many of the people that I meet who are executives in top corporations did not go to undergraduate business schools, nor did they major in economics. They majored in history. They majored in philosophy. They majored in um, English. What, what, what is common to them is a very good command of words 
and they don't have a fear of numbers, and they know where they want to go. And somehow in a liberal arts education, they have learned to, to have a direction and a focus to their life, and therefore people know where they want to go and they want to follow them because they know the objective. You can have all sorts of courses in econ and in the McIntyre School, and if you can't write something down in an intelligent fashion or present it orally in an intelligent fashion, you will never succeed in the world of business no matter what sort of grade points you have because people will not want to be managed by you. If you're really a mean snot, most people won't want to be managed by you. And, and those are things that you may learn just as well by being in a university club, that being a mean snot doesn't get you ahead. And, and, and so being involved in activities can be just as important. My skills as a teacher come, as I mentioned, in part from people who mentored me. But they come in many ways from working in retailing. I started working in retailing when I was 14 years old, and I worked in retailing all through college. And I worked in a sporting goods store, and I sold sporting goods. And I would have to sell sporting goods to somebody who came in who was the president of the Upjohn Company and wanted to talk about fly rods, to somebody who worked at the paper mill and wanted to buy a, a gun to go hunting. And, 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 and the ability to be able to explain to different people what was the merits of this fly rod versus this shotgun helped me become a teacher. And, 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 and there was no course involved in that. There was no grade. It was an experience. And, and I don't know how many people I have known who have, you know, I'm on the board of directors of a, of a company started by a student at UVA. Brilliant kid, brilliant kid, what students call super smart. Um, his, his name is Tim. Tim was a philosophy major here. <laughs> He's a philosophy major. He never took one course in the comm school. Now, this annoys me. He never even took Econ 201. <laughs> no. But, but he runs a company, and it's a successful company. It's a very complicated company. It's a high-tech company, and he's got to know about debentures and getting incorporated in Delaware and all of this stuff that he has done. And uh, you know, he's a philosophy major. He had a passion. When he, when he, he hopes to sell the company and get a Ph.D. in philosophy and come back and be a university professor. So nobody can ever persuade me just on personal experience that, that the only route to success in business is through a professional school. It just doesn't fit with my own experience. It's not to say it's not a possibility, but boy, there are so many people who are, you take a firm like Bain and McKenzie, the BCG, the top consulting firms that hire a lot of, they love UVA students, but they don't just get kids from the McIntyre School. They love talented kids out of the college particularly ones who have been active in student organizations because you know, most of what you do in business, and there's any number of people here who can say this with more authority than I can, you learn on the job. <laughs> you don't learn it in an Econ 201 classroom. Uh, you don't learn it in a McIntyre School classroom. That can help you. I, mean, I hope it isn't a hindrance, but much of what it is comes on the job. And I'm told that's the last question, so thank you very much.